Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Mullcast. Good evening. Good evening. Let's start where all the other podcasts talking about rugby started this week. Terenor won the AIL League 1A, making them champions of Ireland against Clontarf in a brilliant final that they won. They ended up winning 50 points to 24. I think there's so many lessons from this game, but let's just talk about it in a general sense, how brilliant a day it was for Terenor, which is our club. I think that's fairly transparent at this stage. Uh, to win their first title. It's always good for a, a tournament to get a new winner. Like, that's always a good thing. And Ternier, you know, they had to lose one to win one, I think is a kind of a classic thing. They had the heartbreak of the final last year. I mean, they weren't that heart- heartbroken last year. They really enjoyed it last year as well. But this year they went back and he had a team that was overpowering them for 20 minutes, 30 minutes it looked like it wasn't going to be. And then... Rugby's a strange game. It's not all just about power. There's there's so many other ways you can score points uh, that are often overlooked. And maybe this is going to be the first team. I'll let you do your kind of congratulations, Terenor, as well. But the first team, take your points. I, I would say that's the second team. I would say that the, the first team is you, you have to lose one to win one. Because I texted Sean Skeen after last year's final, commiserating and saying exactly that, that maybe you have to win one. And then after the lads beat Turf in Castle Avenue, texting him again saying it's great to get one over out in Castle Avenue because it, it takes away the bogeyman. Because Turf had done the double on us in normal season last year, and then again beat us in the final. Um, so to so to to stop that run and to put a bit of doubt in their minds was uh, was very very important. So I, I do think that preparation for the final and like knowing that it's there at the end of the year and and not getting distracted by the event, all of those sort of things are kind of difficult to quantify. But but really important, and you could see it in in Harrison's um, interviews in in the week leading up to the final. Um, so I, I thought that I thought uh, I thought Shane did a, a, a really good job at halftime in his in his tactics because it was it was fairly obvious watching the match that Tarf's game is built on set piece. It's built on territorial domination. And like it's not just that match. It was like it was it was the same all the way through the season. Like they, they scored four tries in the first half in Lakelands, all of them in the twenty-two. Darcy's such a physical presence. Like he's such an important player for them in the centre. They, they play so much off him. Um, and even when Terrier won out in Castle Avenue, Tarf got two bonus points because they scored four tries. They scored two of them in the last five minutes when Terrier were well ahead. But they they were almost carbon copies of each other. Where they got the ball. They kicked it into the 22, they put on pressure, and then they just, they get over the line. So, as I say, in the first 20 minutes, like, Tarf were dominating. 
Um, and in the second half, Terrinder didn't kick to touch at all. Yeah. At all. And it was, it was they did it, started doing the first half after the out half. He sliced the clearance in his 22 and gave them good territory in our half. And from that, he just went long. And I, I, I was saying that as like, don't fucking, don't give them a base. Just make them run back at us because we can make our tackles in midfield and they, they don't. And like you were saying, like Tarf scored all their tries from inside the 22. Tenor literally scored all their tries from 45 metres out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or more. Oh, like. The nearest was from 45 metres out. Yeah, like I, I did the leaving cert twice, as you know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I lost the first one. <laughs> but uh, definitely the idea of going back to do something again when you're you're not as nervous, like the nerves of doing anything, the unknown, whether it's your driving test, you're leaving cert or whatever, the first time. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, playing the occasion is the phrase that people use. But it's just, it's just a case of experiencing something new and trying to do your absolute best when you're worried about new things. Whereas if you go and do something for the second time, if you're doing like the leaving cert again or your driving test, you've much more experience. You've done it once for the, for the, like, that's the first thing. And secondly, it's not new either. Uh, so you just do your you do your driving test. You've probably got better at driving or better playing rugby or better at doing the leaving cert since. It's, and also, it's just like oh, it's it's actually an exam. And it's like you go into a room for three hours and you write until your hand falls off. So I think definitely, uh, like Clontarf have been to a lot of finals. You know, they're champion club and. Um, and I think that Ternior's final experience was really helpful to them. But your point, the two points you made about, like, we didn't want to get into a mauling battle with Tarf. You know, I was, I was amazed. I was like, I said, I think I said on Twitter, I certainly said, like, to friends that Keelan Dooley's place kicking performance is, I think, probably the best place kicking performance in Lansdowne Road uh, I can remember. Like, 11 from 12. First, he'd taken 12 penalty kicks a goal. Well, it was eight, or, eight penalties and four, eight penalties, sorry, four yeah, comrades. Eight, eight shots at, or 12 shots a goal. Slotting 11 of them, coming away with 30 points in a, in a final. That's like, that is going to be, like, it's what an amazing thing to, to, to accomplish, to I live think, with, yeah. I think, I think as well, to, to directly relate, you have to lose one to win one. In last year's final, uh, Ternier were down, they got a bit of a comeback, and I was, I was sort of thinking to myself, look, you have to make Tarf nervous in a final because they they have a thing about it. Mm. Um, and Turner got to within, I'm going to say five points, I think it was, and had pressure on the Tarf twenty two, and had a penalty, and took a scrum for the yeah, penalty. And at that stage, Tarf had brought on, brought back on Ivan Soraka, who'd started the match, who'd gone off, he returned, and Tarf. Either won the scrum or won a penalty at the scrum. They won a penalty, yeah. Pen, yeah. And that was it. And I'm pretty sure it was five points. And you're sort of saying to yourself afterwards, oh, if you kick that, do you exert scoreboard pressure and tariff? And you sort of acknowledge that you're going to be back in your own half. You're giving up territory, but you're within two points. And the momentum is with you. Yeah. 
Um, and then th- throughout the season, Harrison would have pointed at the sticks a lot, like would, would have made fairly quick decisions to, to point at the sticks. And then as it happened, like Doody's kicking was just phenomenal. It was phenomenal against Khan, uh, you know, in, in a windier day, and it was even better. But the pitch is really good. The pitch is amazing. Like the, 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 the surface good, is really good. Yeah. The day was warm. It was, it was pretty still. Like, you know, you, you don't have a wind. So, um, but like still eleven out of twelve, and <laughs> these are from outside the ten. Yeah, and like he was he was clearing the dead ball line with it, so they weren't just creeping over from it. Like he he had the range quite comfortably, uh, and no less than Ronald O'Gara tweeted about the the technique that he displayed yeah. and just how good it was. What a great compliment to get! Yeah. You know, it was just such a such a great day for for Dooley, um, and and you know for for Sean Skeen and Harrison Burr because that's you don't just you don't like a lot of those positions on the pitch. If in the in the pros you see them, oh, we'll go to our line out, you know, and and you know, basically we'll we'll back ourselves in our line out. And sometimes you're thinking, just like, just take points. I was, I'm gonna stop there because I've said the same thing three times. Well, <clears throat> uh, I want to. It's experimental format that I'm trying out here. Connected with a, le- a game we would maybe discuss later, but so Glasgow didn't take any kicks during the entire season. That's kind of a, a rule that they follow. It's a simple rule. They always kick to the corner. They want to get four points. They see match points is more valuable than three points in a game. Then it gets to the quarterfinal. Their discipline falls apart, but they don't take any kicks when they should in that game. And they end up 14 points and a man down against Munster at home. And they, oof. you go. You yeah. So I was saying this: if when you get when you get chances in front of the posts early on in the game, like you're never go at the end of at the end of when the match is over and you're cooling down, you're never gonna say, "Oh, I wish we hadn't taken those three points like six minutes into the game," because like, firstly, at that stage, you know, if you lose, like you've had seventy four points. 74 minutes to score more points. Like, if you lose, it's not because you took three points early. There's no... When in those situations, like, when it's, when it's frankly, a 100% chance of getting the kick, you know, you're not going to miss it. If, if, you put it. if you put your kicker out there 100 times out of 100, he'd get it 100 times out of 100. So just take those... Like, watching Glasgow, I couldn't actually believe that they were choosing to turn down those opportunities of goal in, in a knockout match. Um, I understand looking back on their win in Thomond, they raced out to a huge lead. Like they were 28 nil up. I think they were 33 3 up at one stage. Um, and they were trying to do the same thing again. The Sturmund drang. But it, it, I would say unforgivable decision making from, from a Glaswegian point of view. Absolutely stupid. It it puts the match. It, it sort of makes the match like American football, in, in a way. In that, but even less like because in American football, you you know that if you're within a certain field position and you're on fourth down, you take a field goal. But really, what made me think about it was you, you see the match in increments of seven. So if you miss your conversion, you're there going, well, where does this fit in? Now we're now we have to score two tries mm-hmm. to win. You go, you don't have to score two tries. You have to get three kicks to draw. Um, and 
I I think a, a lot like Dan McFarland when he went in to Ulster, he played a very sort of offloading wide game that it was really just going, look, it, it, it doesn't matter almost if this works or not. This is the way we are going to play it. This is the way that you have to get used to. Like there's no decision here. I don't want you to take the cautious decision because you'll just take the cautious decision. Yeah. I want you to take the more daring decision that involves handling and passing. And I think in a, in, a, in the same but different way, that's what Glasgow's points policy is, exactly how you described it earlier on. But um, I don't know, like you, you can become a zealot. Like you, I, I don't know where the line is between being a zealot and a martyr. Well, maybe I do know where the line is between zealot and it's a martyr. It's when it becomes cup rugby. You it's when it keep... becomes cup rugby, yeah. you, you become a martyr to it. Mm. Um, Not fireproof because he's a fanatic. <laughs> the deep reference. <laughs> We're going to play that Blau Diamante music at the end. <laughs> so, yeah, is that the is that the theme of the game? And I don't know, I don't know, like if we were going to extend that theme, but there was also a, uh, a bullshit quote, as you, as you referred to them. I'm trying to find it in the, in, in the chat from the coach of the uh, Sharks. Sharks, who was saying about like how you had to give away yellow cards um, playing against Leinster, you know, because they put you under such pressure. I'll find the quote. You have to do it. And you're just like, what are you talking about? That's horseshit. Or bullshit, I think was the line. But I said the application of pressure is key, be it line speed, set piece, territory, breakdown, or scoreboard pressure. And Leinster are very good at understanding how pressure works. Yeah. And being able to apply it. And like, I'm sure I've got quotes from Leo Cullen, so I'm sure we'll talk about him more next week in the build-up to the La Rochelle match. But they're his... His aftermatch, like the, there was stuff, he was pretty deep, I suppose, for Leo, or pretty revealing in the aftermatch of the Bulls in particular, because the season was over and he had two very disappointing results very close together. And I don't know, he pretty revealed more than he typically would, because typically he's won and there's another match coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think he really understands the importance of applying pressure. And I think as, as a consequence of you have to lose one to win one, Leinster are way beyond that. Like Leinster have won five in a row of leagues, five no, leagues four. in a row, four, four leagues in five. a row. Yeah, four, four leagues in a row. Um, they've won four Heineken Cups over different sort of iterations. Um, you know, but Johnny, Johnny's won four. Mm-hmm. Keen Healy's won four. So there, there are still guys in the playing squad who have won four Heineken Cups. Um, so they're going with a huge reservoir of knowledge about what it takes to win, but also the disappointments of losing. And I think if if you go on that sort of basis of, you know, you have to lose one to win one, and that would entail two matches. If if it entails like 12 or 15 seasons, um, that's an incredible reservoir of knowledge about how to approach games and how to take on your opposition and how to play the player and not the game and a whole range of things. Yeah, and as you said, like applying pressure, you can apply pressure, as you said there, in multiple ways. Like the Sharks were able to put a lot of pressure on our scrum, you know. Uh, and then the the problem with the Sharks was what they what they did after. Like they they were able to get penalties out of the scrum. Like every time 
they knocked on the ball, I was thinking, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, it's like pretty 50-50 chance they're going to get a penalty in the next 30 seconds. Um, so the pressure can be applied, as you say, through the scoreboard, through territory, through possession, also through the set piece. And then it's a case of what you do with that pressure because Glasgow are able to put Munster under pressure in the first 20 minutes through both territory uh, and possession and pace, but weren't able to do anything with it. So it's a case of, you know, as I said in, in jiu-jitsu, like position then submission, like you have to make things count as well. Um, and I tell you what, Munster... They got one breakout, went up, not marched up the pitch, but got up the pitch, scored in their first time out. Uh, they are they're a good cup team. They understand that the old cup rugby. Um, I think there's a this is maybe the the, the wrap up on the points, taking your points, scoring tries, going to the corner. And then even just foreshadowing the Heineken Cup final. In the last Heineken Cup final, which everyone knows Leinster lost, but very easily could have won. You know, a, a one call, one knock on, Leinster win that final. Mm. Leinster didn't score any tries. Mm. They kicked points because La Rochelle's discipline was worse than ours. La Rochelle played better, ate physical us, and scored more tries. But you don't win the game by scoring more tries. You win the game by scoring more points in the match. So it's just... It's just a, even to look at the Terenor Clintarf thing. They scored four tries each. It feels like Terenor hosed them. But they scored four tries each, and the last was like the last tries were both kind of chucked on at the end. Yeah. Um. You know, you score. Yeah. There's just more ways to skin a cat than you know than having by playing the power game. Big South African guys that he yeah. thought was going to give him that power game. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out of it. They don't build him like that anymore. He won't like that. He's one of a kind. And this is kind of a little side topic. Colin de Butler, I think it was, speaking after the final, uh, was talking about the gap between some academy players that the a top AIL guys would come up against and how the AIL guys were, were better than them or that he thought that some this game was you know better than a lot of the URC games during the season. It was a brilliant game. Um, I was sort of wonder in a in a in a in an open way, what's the what's the what is the gap? Because uh Aitana, what's his name, sorry, the winger? It's all King. It's all King was playing on the right wing. Uh Alex Soroka, who made such a big impression, particularly last year on a South African tour, and then played again. Did he go in Ireland, emerging Ireland as well? No, I had to pull out broken foot. Aitzel King won the under 20s Grand Slam last year. Brian Deeney. Brian Deeney came on. the bench. Yeah. And I haven't been on the bench for Leinster the previous day, I think. Was he? Uh, no. No. Um, but I haven't played a lot for Leinster this year. But I haven't season. played a lot of games. So yeah. a lot of familiar names. Hugh Cooney, the Clintarf Centre, won the Grand Slam with Ireland this time and looks really good. Yeah. Didn't so, through the intercept pass and didn't look as good in the AAL final. Yeah, so what what is the gap and and do you think there's anything like is there is there a way to come back and get these players? Cuz my gut feeling is that 
the reason you employ academy players is because you can pay them a 20 year old's wage and you can't pay some guy in the middle of his career what you can afford to play no not not the only reason it's you can it's like that's certainly comes into into play but it's like players get better with coaching in in the professional environment like I've, i've said this a number of times before they so the players will spend roughly can you do the sums in this? I was terrible at maths. So, like, say, multiply 24 by 60. Yes, that is. 144? Well, 1,444. 1,444. Well done, Jesus. 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 Well training and like training is not just something you do to pass the time between matches so you get when you're in there in a professional uh, environment you spend time getting stronger faster more flexible more resilient to injury fitter you get more tactically aware you get more skillful you get better unit skills um so the sooner that they get players into that uh, coaching regime, the players get better in coaching. Like the player, I saw Hugo Keane. I've said this. Hugo Keane's one I always use because I remember being struck by. I saw his first game, uh, a friendly for Leinster against Northampton years ago in Donnybrook, and I remember thinking, like, Jesus, Hugo Keane, this is not good. Like, I didn't. I was. I was thinking at that stage, mightn't even get to the end of his academy contract. You know, they might let him go beforehand. Now he's up for. You know, he was. He's up for. Like Arupa Player of the Year, like which is an underrated in my opinion. Like that's voted by your peers as like, are you the best player, the best rugby player in Ireland? He's one of the candidates this year. An amazing player. So he got better and better and better. Now, when coaches and it, it's not a single coach making a judgment call on guys whether or not they go into academy, it's more widespread than that. And there is there's generally in the Leinster Academy, for example, it's you know six to eight, rarely take in more than eight. So there are people who are just on the wrong side of that cut, whether or not they go into back into the uh, back into the amateur ranks, or whether they find another province, as for example, Nick Timoney did, as an, and a number of other players. Those calls, it's just the point in time when they get made. It's one person's decision. It's like Warren Gatland selecting Lions teams. Like it goes down in history. It's like this is the ultimate judgment in in your value as a player. It's not. It's one person's decision, or it's a t- it's a, a selectoral team decision for the Lions. Selectoral team decision for academy coaches. Sometimes you get it wrong, but it's hard to get back in. So sorry, I've, I've approached that in a quite a roundabout way. Those players, when they're in the academy, they, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe they're not as good as some of the players who they're playing against who are 24, 25, whereas they're 20, say, for example. Um, But they're going to get better as well. The second thing is that, um, sorry, and and, then there's the other side of the argument is, yeah, we've, like, I remember talking to you about this like is there a potential for for some sort of basically that that al players that uh, 
each of the provinces select five AAL players, pay them a wage to train with them over the summer. And they say, these are the fellows that, like, and this would come from the IRFU centrally funded to say that there is a link between the end of the AAL season, which is over now, like the professional game isn't, isn't over yet. So they say, well, Connacht select this player, this player, this player. We can pay your accommodation and we'll pay you a wage to come and train with us for the summer and see if you if, if we want to take a look at you. And you can select anybody. And the, the player themselves can just go, no, I don't fancy it. You know, I'm, I've got a job or actually want to go, go away on holidays. But for those people who are committed and want to have a second chance or maybe a first chance to be a pro player, like I think that is a, a potential way. It, it also feeds the, uh, the desire that a lot of Irish rugby fans have for some sort of draft system. You know, it gets mentioned time and time again, oh, there should be a draft. And you're saying, well, this, this could potentially feed that system. And also, it does provide a route from the AAL into the pros. And just think of the content as well. <laughs> Huge content. Unbelievable content. Dead time for rugby for a lot of that. And instead, now you have the chance to follow guys who you've seen in the club game, whether it's Dylan Donlan, who again bagged. Like, I, I'm not going to character assassinate somebody, but like, I'm s- sort of am. Like Declan Moore got hired by, uh, he's an Australian Irish qualified hooker. He got hired by Munster. I think he played in you know ten minutes of, in one season. Then he got sent up to Ulster. Didn't play any minutes, and now he's going to Connacht. And you're going, this fella has a, an agent who's like basically God. He keeps on getting him jobs. And then when he gets to the province, it's like he's on his third province. He never fucking plays. So I'm thinking like. Wouldn't it make more decision? Wouldn't it make more sense rather than to go with like this guy who gets gets shuttled along? Wouldn't it make more sense for somebody to go? Well, listen, Dylan Donlan scored something like sixteen plus twenty-two, thirty-eight tries in two seasons of the AAL. He's been involved in. I think he was involved in a Connacht squad at one stage. Doesn't it make sense if we're looking for a number four hooker to give this fella a chance? Now, Dylan Donlan might have a job that he likes. Um, you know, have just bought a home or something. I don't know, but like he's a he's a fellow I would think of occasionally. Now I think of Keelan Dooley. Go like, you know, we need a fucking place kicker. Let's <laughs> get the best place kicker in Ireland. In. You know, so I think that there's a potential route for that to happen. I think it it shows it would it would be a really there are people in jail who would love to be pros. You know, who maybe had one bite at the cherry when they were younger. Maybe it didn't fall for them because of injury. Maybe it didn't fall for them because it was a chance they weren't quite mature enough to take. Maybe, maybe it was just a bad call from the uh, the people who were giving out the, the contracts. But I think that would be. Uh, I, I've always liked the idea. Anyway, there's a few other features of the academy system. So one of the features of the academy system is that once you're in it. It's it's harder to get out of it. a lot like you know the Irish national team is as as historically would be, and really what I mean by that is if you get injured, the chances of you going on the pace and getting dropping off the radar and putting on two stone and you know not getting picked for an Irish interna- you know underage international team and sort of falling off the tracks they're much much lower. Uh, the chances are if you get injured, you'd be given a top class rehab program. And you'd be expected to turn up for it in a top class training facility like the week after you get injured and you will rehab diligently. So particularly if you look at really high um, potential guys, like I remember when we were doing the five up um, 
Just explain what that was. The, uh, yeah, so the five up was started off in the 2012 group where we looked at um, five guys from the from the under 20s that season. As it happened, it was one from each province and one guy who was going to play two years or had played two years and just checked in on them on, on a year. So sort of gave their background in the first year, how they played, and then checked in on them in subsequent years. So did it for 2012, 2013, 2014 years and checked in a few times afterwards and then just like stopped doing the blog. And in the... Third year of doing it, uh, Dan Levy was one of the guys. He was, um, he was the Leinster guy, and Dooley, I'm pretty sure, was the guy who played twice. There was two guys from Leinster in that one, and Levy was injured so much for the first two or three years. He was in it like he had struggled to find some seasons when he played matches, like playing for UCD, and it, like it seemed to be a few injuries, but he was in the system. You always knew that he was going to come through because. Leinster were an event, and you knew he was excellent. And it's it's kind of when is when the post mortem when the obituary in his career has been written. It's just like oh, he was a brilliant underage player. He played cup rugby when he was like oh, senior cup rugby when he was fifteen. Captain of Michael's team, captain of the under twenties. Had a you know won a Grand Slam, won all his Ireland matches, won a European Cup. Did a really bad knee injury, came back. Never the same player. That's a season, and it doesn't mention the fact that like he barely played for two seasons after moving from school up. And doubtless he was going to make it, but the thing is, you're there's far less chance of you dropping off. So that that's one of the feature of the academies. The other feature of the academies is they're cheap. Like the guys go in when they're young and they're in college, and they can they can sort of marry their college career. And if they need to extend it from doing like a three year course over four years, or a four year course over five years, or a three year course over five years, like if, if that's what it takes, um, you can do it. But they don't have to get paid very much, and like the opportunity cost to them isn't that much because they wouldn't be getting paid very much. Whereas if you're in your mid-twenties and you're kind of going, like if you really want to be a pro, you'll go with it and you'll go and be a pro. But, you know, maybe you maybe you don't want to give up the money. Now, I mean, I think if you don't want to give up the money, you don't want to be a pro and, that, and that'll be fine. So I think I think what you're looking at is, is guys who are 24, 25 and they're offered the opportunity and they know that the money's going to be shite, but like they have a shot at it. I think they'll go with it and they'll just go, you know, screw it. Like, you know, I'll do this for eight months. If it doesn't work... I'll go back, but you might get injured in those eight months because that's what happens, you know, whereas when you're in the academy, you've got, really, you've got 36 months and if you get injured in one eight months, you'll just rehab and you'll come back and you'll still have another two or three years to, to sort of prove yourself. Um, so I guess the question I'd have is always, do they pick the right guys to go into the academy? That's that's the kind of the bit. But look, I, I don't think the academy structure is... Is, is really the question here. I, I do think it's reflective of, of how good the AAL is. I think that um, playing against guys that are on form, that are confident, that are training well, um, you, you can see a difference between them and the academy guys who are... And you have to remember with the academy guys who are playing, particularly guys who are playing international rugby, they're not training with that group for a lot of the season after Christmas. They're being kind of parachuted in and taken somebody's place to use like old school parlance of of how under twenties were treated, mm. um, because you got a guy who's been playing all the way through the season, um, and then certainly January, February, March, playing for that team, and the under twenty comes back after the Six Nations, he plays April, 
and gets in ahead. So it's it's not like you're you're in a in, you're in a well oiled machine. And then the other side of that is, I would say the other side. If you take sort of the academy age as like one bit of the sandwich, and then the club game is the filler in terms of age profile. Take the Leinster senior team as the other side of the sandwich, the other bit going through. We Terry Neuer trained against the Leinster senior team uh, during the Six Nations, so like they weren't training against Keelan Dooley or not, uh, not Keelan Dooley, uh, Keelan Darris and Tyg Furlong and Andrew Porter and James Ryan. Like they were training against the non-international guys, but some guys who were still really good. And the difference is enormous. Like Leinster are as you would imagine, like robots. They're, they're so good, like they're so coordinated, their spacing is so good, they're, they're off the line really quickly, they have a line immediately, uh, and this is all with the ball, and then, sorry, without the ball, and then when they have the ball, they've always got two options, they often have three options, whereas a club team has has one option, like the club team is gonna play out the back, because sort of that's, that's the pattern they play, whereas, Leinster team is going to play front door, back door, and the chances are the guy can run anyway. Like if it's Harry Byrne, he, he can run, you know, or he'll play he'll play front door, or he can run. He he always like there's always two options, and that's like these guys are good. Yeah, <laughs> the pros are good. Yeah, I think just to wrap that up that that, that conversation, um, I remember a time when the big thing was we have all these talented schoolboys and we can't make good professionals out of them. And now we have a fairly tight system and sort of the other side of it's being criticized is like, they're all just these posh, talented schoolboys <laughs> who are going through the grinder and turning out as professionals. And it's like, that's a good problem to have. That's a, you know. Yeah. Well, it's not a problem at all. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you get them from, the, from that side of things. It's like, there's nothing, there's nothing to complain about. Let's complain about something, you know, and it's, no problem. Referee blows for half time. Some of the fans not happy with that. We missed last week, and I have been to the Aviva twice since it happened. So uh, let's go backwards and talk about Leinster Toulouse from a, a further week's remove. Uh, as I said when I tweeted about us not doing a podcast last week, the theme of it was going to be it's really hard to win this tournament. Oh, I, I'm always saying that. I'm always saying how hard it is to. I get a little bit like irritated when people go, Leinster have only won, and, you know, one Heineken Cup in eleven years or something. You're going, well, like, you know, basically, <laughs> like that first eleven years or ten years or whatever. Yeah, we have won one, and like, like when you look back at at the recent history, it's like we've been to three of the last five finals, uh, and yeah, we've lost two finals. But God, like in a cup campaign, like the further you get, the better. Like you, you can choose to be a complete hard ass and go like second place is first loser. That's if that's your opinion, so be it. You know, it's not my opinion. Like the the further you get, the better. The more matches you play in a cup, the better. There's only going to be one winner. Um, so I uh, what was the question? Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. It's hard to go, hard, hard tournament to win. Hard tournament to win. I think the 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 argument you had made to me in, in, in person when we were talking about it was essentially that Toulouse's stats were those of a team that played well and they got hammered. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I looked at that. I looked at those stats afterwards because I was thinking like Toulouse a lot of the ball. Not only did a lot of the ball, made a lot of meters, uh, made uh, more passes, more offloads, beat more defenders. 
everything they had, almost almost everything they had, like that they were able to put together on the stat sheet because EPCR have like quite a good stats page. We're like, this was you're looking at that and you're going, Toulouse probably won this match, and certainly they, you know, they were the, the better team on the day. And then you're looking at the game and you're going, Well, that's not how it folded out at all. So the first thing that every time I go through these, and I would look at the stats after matches and go, because it does it confirm what I thought, does it change what I thought? And I'm always looking for the magic number. Like, not that I can have a Rainman like memory for all the numbers, but I'm always looking for like, what is it? Is it turnovers conceded? You know, is that the big one, or is it clean breaks, or is it something as simple as try scored that means that you're going to be the likely winner? It's fucking none of them. There is no magic stat. There's no single thing in rugby. The only thing that matters is like the big stat on the scoreboard. Time. <laughs> away. Uh, no, they're like just the score. Like at that game, and this was like, and afterwards, you know, the, the one that was rolled out a number of times was Leinster scored uh, 28 points or 26 points, whatever it was, while Toulouse were down to 14. And even uh, Ugo Mola, who I really like, so I'm not going to be hard on him, goes, oh, you know, when it was 15 all, we actually won. You're going, fucking so what, buddy? <laughs> You know, I don't mind him saying that, but also, like, so what? Yeah, if you only came to the last five minutes, they also yeah. won five nil. Yeah, like, what at, the fuck does that mean? At, at, at like minute twelve and minute seventy eight, we actually won that game. Look at that. You know, like that's that's that is what it is. I don't mind him saying that, but also, I'm not gonna fucking like take that with any sense of like that's an important thing to say. Like, you get fucking yellow cards in games. Now, if that's what happens, if you're under pressure, if you make bad decisions that's just a fact of rugby like making a bad decision oh if we hadn't knocked on all those balls you know we could have won that game yeah if some buts um but to lose were good they were not i think uh key and tracy from the indo said what a massive disappointment to lose were and i was like going well not really like you wanted a super tight uh if you wanted a super tight like down to the last wire semi-final, maybe you're disappointed. But did Toulouse, like, were they were they a shit team? No, they're a really good team. Beforehand, everyone was saying, like, this is lining up for Toulouse. They've been able to rest their players, you know, in the game before. They've got a, like, they've got a full team of internationals. DuPont is in amazing form. Uh, Entomac is back to his best form. Ramos has never been in better form. Like they had their European Player of the Year nominees in. They had their fight or Six Nations Player of the Tournament nominees in. They had LaBelle back in the wing. Like they had a lot of good players in there. And and by the end of like with the game was over with, you know, quite a lot of minutes left on the clock. A really impressive performance from Leinster. Absolutely ruthless. And a really difficult team to play against. Re, uh, particularly in Lansdowne Road, really difficult team to to rattle, um, difficult team to line up against. So, having looked, my memory of the two preceding semi-finals that Toulouse had played in Lansdowne Road, which ended up with very similar scorelines, is that Toulouse came with a pack that just wasn't going to last the pace. Whereas this time they came with the pack that that wasn't as big, but was still big. Like they still had Mayafu. And I don't know if Mola looked at, you know, the pace that the top 14 has played at or the, the amount of ball and play minutes or was kind of windy about his forwards' um, uh, stamina. 
and decided to go with a 6-2 split. But but a lot like the way that just kicking to the corner has become almost de rigueur and has, has, has certainly surpassed what I was accustomed to in rugby. The subs bench used to be a thing in rugby. And then it was accepted practice that you had a 5-3 split because you covered all eventualities. When South Africa won with the 6-2 split, it was like you couldn't enforce your power game. And the 6-2 split then, but as, as was pointed out by you after that final, it works when you've got uh, Franz Stein as one of your two because he covers six positions. So to lose for whatever reasons, best known to themselves, maybe stamina, maybe they wanted to try to, you know, like grind Leinster down, beat them up, uh, whatever it was, went to the 6-2 split, it was fatal because they moved the best player in the world from his best position and he just couldn't affect the games in the same way. Whenever he got the ball... He was great. He was great, but he wasn't getting it in the right place. Whereas when he plays scrum half, he's he he, he understands the, the role of the scrum half in a way that no one does at the moment, no one else does in the world. And like perhaps never has. Like maybe maybe Gareth, maybe Gareth Edwards if he was like playing professionally, maybe. But I don't know, I never saw Gareth Edwards play consistently. Like he was retired effectively before I was born, you know. So like he, um, an incredible loss for Toulouse. Yeah. And and that's that's the risk of the 6-2 split. And the number nine, like, so that was another, sorry, this is all coming back to me now, like other things that I thought about. Like the nine who came on, he had a couple of good moments, but in general, he was bad. It wasn't like that they they brought they moved DuPont and brought on a really good nine. It's like, it was a feature of Leinster's game that were really able to disrupt the back of Toulouse's turnovers. Also, he picked up the ball. I've forgotten his name again. Grau. Grau. He picks up the ball and then he takes a step and you're wondering, oh, why is Keelan Doris in my passing lane? He's going, because you fucking picked it up, buddy. Like, he's on. He's onside. He's come through the middle of the ruck. They didn't They didn't take care of their, their middle of the ruck quite a lot. Like, they're going, oh, this ball's won. Lancer are fanning out. This fella picks the ball up. Keenan Lars walks through the middle of the rock and all of a sudden he's in the passing lane. So that was a mistake from, from Mole as a sub. You know, the like there's quite a lot of talk about that afterwards, and which I agree with. Like I'd I'd look back on Retier's um his resume because I remember Retier as a like Simon Keogh, a scrum half slash winger. And I was in, incorrect. He's a winger slash fullback slash scrum half last. So I thought, like, Jesus, did they pick two scrub sub scrum halves on the bench? No, they paid a guy who's a, definitely a scrum half and then a guy who's a winger who can cover a bit of scrum half. So they, they clearly should have made the, the switch was to put Mali into the centres and then put uh, Retier on as a wing. So that was a mistake for Mola. The other big mistake, there are two other big mistakes from Toulouse in this game. Firstly was Ramos going with the slap down, which is always going to get you a yellow card in every game. Semi-final, league match, fucking amateur game you're going to get everyone looks at that and goes that's a slap down you don't have a chance you know knocked it five yards forward on the blind side on the 22 in a, in a two on one and then the other one was uh, the uh, sub uh, prop like head button Josh van der Fleer and then going back for seconds and I go I saw some really fucking foolish comments about van der Fleer afterwards uh, oh he should have been yellow carded for joining the rook and correctly going I don't like. I'm not going to dignify that with any sort of comment. I was like, it's a button from the head. Your man is pretty lucky only to get a yellow. But those are three mistakes. Toulouse didn't make a huge amount of mistakes other than that, and they ended up getting hosed. So, 
Like that's that's how tough it is to win. A massive, really experienced team with Toulouse, full of outstanding players. You know, with a good coach, a team who've won, a championship team. They make three mistakes on the day, and they ended up like going going back to the same articles read before. Like Toulouse can't beat Leinster. You know, Lansdowne Road is um, you know the graveyard for French teams. Um, so. It's a hard, like that's before the match, like a lot of people were saying Toulouse, this looked good for Toulouse, uh, Leinster are going to have to play their absolute best to win and it's still going to be tied either way and it's not how it turned out because shit can go wrong for you on the day. You can have like, it's a, it's a cup and you can just get knocked the fuck out. I want to just bring this up in the last two semifinals, so that's 2011 and last year. The two Leinster to the semi-final. No, there was one more recent than that. Yeah. There was last year and... I 2019. 2019, yeah. What score was that one? Uh, oh, three was tries to one. Scott three. Fardy, James Lowe, and uh, Doris and Deegan were on the bench for us. It was very youngsters back then. Okay, well, the two I'm thinking of that uh, reinforce my point, they got free tries, weird tries. DuPont picked the ball off the side of it. Oh, that, last side. year, yeah. Yeah, and he just ran the length of the pitch and you're going... He made that look like a piece of piss. <laughs> made it look like he was strolling and no one else was trying. And then I remember in the 2011 one, they hit the pen, they hit the post with a, with the a simple kick yeah. and ended up scoring a try off the ball hitting the post. And um, in this game, Leinster got the free, weird freak try where Dan whacks the ball into um, Jack Willis's, Willis's face. face. It springs up to the worst person it could fall to, Dan Sheehan. And he just burns everyone and yeah. scores a brilliant try. And like now, in fairness, Ramos did did tag him at the end. <laughs> I, don't know. I, always, I thought that was hilarious. He literally tags him like he's playing tag rugby. He puts both his hands on his hips and then just sort of throws his hands up in the air in disgust. But that I mean, that adds a layer of gloss. It also really was it was the dagger because it just looked like we'd scored three tries in the first yellow card segment, yeah. and Jimmy O'Brien's foot was just in touch, and then immediately that yeah, happens. Oh, sorry, that's what it was. Sorry, that's what it was. Yeah, he knocked it on. Um, but that kind of thing is a real dagger blow. The other thing I think is that we listed all of Toulouse's strengths and like Leinster probe for their weaknesses, that little blind side that they kept on finding and that led to the Ramos yellow card and that set up one of the other breaks in that like hot period in the first half. Like that is a clear weakness for them. Like not one that I had identified, no, well, one, well, one that Leinster had very much identified and they kept going for it. And you think, this is a team with all these amazing players, this huge pack, the the Jouet Jouet, you know, thought process and everything and the play, play style. Who says play style? Um, that's Fat Sam, by the way. Um, like, they have all these things going for them. It's like, yeah, that's not a whole rugby match, though. There's others. There's yeah. gaps in. There's little gaps. They're only small gaps, but Le- Leinster also found those small gaps. The blindside thing was huge, um, and it's like I, I think it's looking at um, how Munster played against Glasgow. Munster's their defensive line right. You got a lot of praise for how they played, and it's like it's one thing when Leinster tend to play badly. Uh, it's it's a case of going open through ten too often, and Gibson Park varies that varies this side in which attack. Like it's as a number nine, you know, it's run pass kick left or right or open or blind. Like you've you've a this decision making matrix of of what to do. 
and he so often gets those calls right and then obviously does them really quickly and really well. But playing the blind side, like what does it what does it do as a when you have the ball? Um, I, I I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. I guess instinctively it widens the pitch. Um, if you go down the short side, um, because your your next opportunity is that your pitch is going to be even bigger on the open side. Um, it's where a lot of defenses tend to hide players, like particularly England, what they used to do, and a lot of teams will play a very fast line speed off the rook, but not necessarily on both sides of the rook because they're hiding guys there for a reason. Because yeah. they, they're not going to be quick. So there's the opportunity to attack it. Um, and I guess they're the, they're the main two, the fact that it widens the pitch. I think as well, it, it depends on the sort of the ball playing caliber of, of your own players. Um, so one is like, do you have a good first receiver or do, like, you know, you need two good first receivers, one, one on the open side where you're going to attack and, and one on the blind side where you need an alternative. But I, I think to use that sort of idea of, of heads up rugby, if you've got to go to attack and scrum half, you don't even need a first receiver. It certainly helps to have one, but you've you've got a distributor. And I suppose on the blind side, it's, it's easier to make a count. So if you look at Aussie Rugby League and some of the analysis that they do, like on the telly, you mm. know, but like at the sort of the, the clever bit of the telly, um... They, they just count out from the touchline. Yeah. And they'll go first defender, second defender, third defender, and you go, what are they talking about? And you go, ah, the touchline. And you'll just look at a mis- mismatch. So, like, wh- when you're looking at three guys, it's easy. Like, you, you can count up to three. Now, anything over that is is a bit more sort of, like, are they playing two back? Yeah. Are they playing, like, a hard press? Are they, you know, are they connected adequately in midfield? Is it like, are their centres together? Are they out half and their centres together? Like, where's that back row? It's difficult. Like, Johnny Sexton probably does the maths on it, but, like, it's hard to do. But, like, you know, have they got two or three guys? Have we got three or four guys? You can count that. And you, you can look at it pretty quickly and just go, numbers, numbers! Yeah. And, and attack it. Yeah. And it's and difficult if you, for... If you've got a quick fit scrum half, like Gibbo... Um, you can do it again and again and again. Certainly, something that I feel is that when you are uh, when you have a reasonably short blindside, so say fifteen or less, it's hard for them to get the right number of defenders there, and it's hard for those defenders to come off the line quickly. Uh, whether you're flat or deep, whether you have three on two or two on two, they generally are not going to come off the line. You have a better chance of sort of in the first place winning the contact just by knocking them over. Or in the second place, beating them. Because typically lads coming off, there's too many problems with lads coming off, one lad coming off the line if he's the only defender on the line side, or even two lads linking up. Like that rush defense is an open side trait. It's not a, It's not something that works particularly well <laughs> on either side of the, uh, on, on both sides of the pitch. So potentially, you know, it's a... Um, it's something that you can turn to. Like we, we've talked about this before on a number of occasions. Like what you can do to f- defeat, because sometimes if you're playing against, a, a, I'm going to try and finish one of these sentences. Sometimes if you're playing against a team who have a great rush defense, you're going like, this looks unbeatable. How do you beat this? And then you think, well, what would you normally do? You're going, you vary your game plan so you can try and chip, you can pl- play deeper so that they're just going to have to keep on fucking rushing. <laughs> 
you know, which is something that Glasgow did. Now it's, you can lose out big, but you can also win. The Hugh Jones pass for their only try of the game was a good example of them winning that, beating that rush by going deeper and wider. And then Fekato's big tackle was an example of them losing that. But then you can also just pick and go so that these guys are going like, I'm still out here ready to make my rush defense and not making any tackles. You just keep on going through the middle. You can play the blind or you can chip over the top. Or, you know, the grubber is more and more... Like, the one thing which I sort of would like to see is that that very acute grubber kick pass so that when the guy is charging out, that you exploit the dog leg, not by trying to run there, but by literally treading through a forward pass with your foot. Mm. So the, the ball is only going... It might travel 20 yards sideways and three or four yards forward. And it's like, that's the, that's the pass. You can't make that pass legally with your hands, but you can make it with your foot. Um, so I think there's a number of ways. Like it's, one of the, it's one of my favorite um, things to look at when people are saying, like pointing out, like for example, Fekato's great tackle going, what could Glasgow have done there? Because it looks inevitable that Fekato makes that amazing man and ball tackle. What are their options there? So that doesn't happen. You know, it's an interesting thing to sort of consider. Yeah, ways to move around teams. And, and why don't you just pick off interceptions from 45 metres out and leg it in or have a number eight who can outpace their other team's backs oh, and lay a beautiful word. pass into the winger's hands. Yeah. Or well, string together a, like an incredible multi-phase move when it looks like he can never stop scoring in the last minute. That, those are also good ways to score. <laughs> going in like a wildcat. Connacht kicked their points and they won in Ravenhill. Great. Yeah. Well, excellent segue. I mean, that's what they pay me for. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have already talked kind of about this, the situation with Ulster in terms of McFarland uh, and he's at a crossroads or the end of a road or whatever. Andy Friend is at the end of the road with Connacht. Eventually he's got one game or two games left. Um, I think they've had a brilliant second half this season. Amazing. And he, I have to say, I'm, I'm like the millionth person to say it, but I'm delighted for him. He comes across as such a good guy in practically every interview I've read. I come away thinking, like, there's this, what a sound fella. What a, what a good-natured, adventurous, decent type of fella. And he made it a great comment which is like quite prosaic, but it's just so true. He goes, after like I talked to Dan, you know, McFarland after the, before the game and after the game, and, and uh, he's there going, sort of the way that media is at the moment, it, it comes out like one guy's, you know, a really good coach and the other guy's a donkey. And he goes, it's just not what it is. You know, rugby, like when you're, when you're in the pros, when you're an Irish provincial professional coach, like they're all good coaches. Um, but it just, it just reminded, he, he put that so, uh, he put that short, such a short, uh, way. I just thought like, Jesus, that's, and he said the word donkey, which I just thought like, that's a good Aussie phrase. Um, his, his, he's been able to turn. I remember looking at the end of the season and I was thinking like, Connors are going to, I thought Connors would get turned over by Cardiff because Cardiff were going to have Fallatow in the team and uh, Cardiff were used to playing on, on an artificial pitch and they are Cardiff for a team who wouldn't fear Connacht like as 
as much as like none of the Welsh teams are doing well this year, like Cardiff were a massive team and Connacht draw is like, you know, a, a, the smallest of the Irish teams. So like Connacht conclusively won that match and it set them up really well. Then they went over to Glasgow in a game and there's things like Glasgow had a hammered monster and were looking really good. And I thought like, you know, Connacht not going to really get anything out of this and, you know, almost won that game. So they came into, they came up against Ulster. I expected the Stormers to finish second, Ulster third, and it turned out the other way around. So going into that game, I was thinking again, like, Ulster have home advantage. It should just be too much. And the truth of that game was that Connors were the better team for pretty much, uh, I would say, 60 minutes of the hour. They should have been further ahead. They wasted a couple of chances. Um... You can't look past Tom Farrell not passing to Keelan Blade and just thinking, like, oh, that's a waste. I know Balakum is incredibly quick and there's the outside chance he catches everyone whenever there's a runaway. But I thought Blade was just in under the sticks there. They failed to get on the board in the first 15 minutes of the second half. They failed to score a try, rather. I was thinking, oh, they might regret that. And, and they didn't. Um, and... You know, there's a there's a there's an awful lot to like about the way that that team has has shown um, that the first half of the season, which, which things were against them, they had a tough schedule. They're away from home all the time because the sports ground has been redeveloped. Then they also like they also fucked up a couple of games. They did fuck them up. It was their own fault. You know, they fucked up a Challenge Cup game, which could have got them you know home quarter final and all the way through. So I was, at that stage, I was thinking, oh, sort of more of the same. But friend has put together, a friend and Wilkins and the rest of the coaching staff uh, have managed to put together a really strong end to the season. Now, going down to the Stormers on, you know, one week's notice to play a knockout game is a big ask. But like, I've been wrong about Connacht so often in the last six weeks, say seven weeks, that uh, I'm just going to zip my trap for once. I think what's interesting about Connacht, a couple of things. The fact that Bundy is back, but Mac Hansen is, it's like he's one of the best players in the Irish team, mm-hmm. uh, not just a solid starter. And then um, Finley Bealham. Finley Bealham, like, had such a big, like, the best part of the international career so far. Like they have three lads who are in Ireland's twenty-two, um, if everyone's available. Ulster, I think, have one lad, which is Hendo, and he's not—he's not always around. Like Ulster have like maybe got more better players or more mid-level players than Connacht, but they have less superstars. And Connacht made all those guys. Now none of them are from. Uh, the province Connacht by birth they're all uh, Irish qualified via uh, heritage or, or uh, residency but they're all they're Connacht made they're made by Connacht uh, rugby football the Connacht branch whatever you call it um, you know they're all made in Connacht essentially they're they're uh, so I, th- I think that's a huge element to it <clears throat> and the other thing is that the URC has had lots of ups and downs this season particularly for Munster and for Connacht. Throughout the season, they had poor starts to it both. 
for various reasons. Munster getting used to new coaching, maybe poor shopping during the summer. Connacht away from home, a couple of fuck-ups, like you said. And now they're both in the semi-final and, like, feeling great about themselves, I'd say. I'd say Munster are probably like, I wish he didn't have so many players injured, but, like, things have gone well for this season. And with their away wins and all that in the, in the quarterfinals, and they're both in the Champions Cup, which was, again, something that was, you know, there was a point where Munster had lost to, was it that game they were surprised to lose? Maybe the Glasgow game that you mentioned. Mm. And you're going like, well, Munster can only yeah, afford an awful lot to do, up, yeah. You know? um, so I just think it's really interesting how, you know, the, they have oscillated so much throughout the season, both those teams. And they're both coming up now at the right end of things. Whereas at Ulster... You know, finished second in the league. Yeah, had a brilliant start, had a wobble, regained there, and then like... Finish second in the league, they lose their knockout game, and it's like, where's this going? So, um, I think as Jurgen Klopp says, it doesn't really matter what they say about you when you come in; it's what they say about you when you leave. But the Cappuccino Cowboys in frothy form at the moment, their second try. Last question. This is just a, a straight up. Uh, we don't know who Lance are going to pick today. Team will be announced tomorrow. Today, when you listen to this, probably. Um, let's assume Harry Byrne is picked at 10 yeah who's on the bench at a scrum or as out half uh, don't think they'll have an out half on the bench I think Frawley will be the backup out half and he'll be in the team so who'll be the two the, the three backs on the bench Jesus <laughs> good question I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know the, I, I hadn't uh I'm just saying, is Sam Prendergast going to be there? It's what I want. Is the, is the answer I want? Do you, do you think he will? I don't think they'll pick Ross. No, I don't think so either. Uh, I think Sam Prendergast will be on the bench. Okay. What do you think? Or do you um, think Ross will be on the bench? Ross is on the bench against the Sharks. Yeah, but this is only a week to the final. Yeah. Just to go off the HIA, can you play the final? Most likely not. I think in I think there's some way that you can. The professional players have a different. I looked up the HIA protocols actually after a monster game. Jesus, like the monster game was horrific in terms of the number of head injuries, uh, and I thought like there'd be an easy answer. The HIA protocols are for doctors. Yeah. You know they go on for about seventeen pages. I don't know who to pick. Um, Jackson. Balance. Yeah, yeah, like a balance between do you, do you try to wrap everybody in cotton wool or do you try to get games into guys' legs? Like I, let me see, I would expect Robbie Henshaw to play, which would mean he'd be 12 or maybe 13. And then I'd expect Harry Byrne to play, so he'll be 10. So that would make Frawley 12. And then it means... I think you're right. I think. Well, no, you'd have, you'd have Charlie. You'd have Charlie Natai. So Charlie Natai would be on the. He'll be he'll be involved. Like number twenty three. At twenty three, let's let's say he's involved at twenty three, yeah. right? And Frawley will cover ten. Natai will cover the centers, or he'll come on for Robbie. You might then have Jimmy might play because he can cover the centers, and he he might play in the back three. I think Jimmy would be fullback. Yeah. Um, and then is is Foley fit at scrum half? 
Foley's back training, yeah. So you'll have, I think you'll start Kelleher. Yes, I agree. Yeah, you start Luke yeah. McGrath, I think you'll have Foley on the bench. Um, yeah, so. Keelan Dooley, possibly number 22. I don't think I don't think you'll go with Prendergast. Don't think you'll go with Prendergast. I'd say Kaylee it is. Kaylin Dooley's preparation hasn't been great this week. It's been compromised. <laughs> anyway, congratulations to the New York. Well done, New York.